Welcome to the Madrigos Midwest podcast, Mental Health Matters, where we discuss mental health matters because we know that mental health matters. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this edition of the Madrigos Midwest podcast, Mental Health Matters. We are privileged today to be hosting Rabbi Yaakov Danishevsky for our podcast. Thank you, Yaakov, for joining us. Thanks for inviting me on. So I will briefly give those listeners, I know many here, certainly in the Chicago community, uh, are very familiar with you from your different roles in the community, whether it's in the as a therapist or in the role of a, a teacher, of a Rebbe, or your social media presence, however it may be. But uh, let me just give a brief intro for those who do not know. Yaakov is a clinical therapist specializing in treating trauma and sex addiction and other life adjustment challenges. As a therapist, Yaakov is warm and personal, personable as he is, I can vouch to as a person. And he's also not afraid to ask the tough questions. Yaakov relates to his clients with curiosity, compassion, and deep sensitivity. Alongside his therapy work, Yaakov is a sought after speaker and Jewish educator. He is known for his ability to blend the spiritual psychology and philosophy of Torah in a profound yet accessible way. Yaakov has a master's in social work and Jewish philosophy, as well as smicha. Yaakov lives in Chicago with his wife and four children. And on a personal note, I can say that before I came to Chicago, Yaakov, I owe a lot of credit to for bringing me to connecting me with Madragos as he was, uh, working for Madrigos as well, partially. And he told me that that's the place to be when I'm looking for a, a post in this field. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. So thank you, Yako, for joining us. Thank you personally. And I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, it's, a pl- it's, always, it's always a great feeling when two, two different people or things that you, uh, that you like are able to come together. So glad it worked out. Great. Thank you. So Let's start. Why don't you, I know I just gave that uh, introduction, but let's hear it from you a little bit. Why don't you tell us a brief history of your professional career? Uh, Sure. So it's actually funny because it's not, uh, it has not gone where I at all expected it to go. Um, I uh, graduated uh, YU um, majoring in Jewish philosophy and and philosophy and really spending most of my time uh, focused on, on learning and in, in the base medrash as well, um, and then went for smicha uh, and a master's in Jewish philosophy. I was planning on becoming a, a pulper rabbi. And that was my, my vision, my dream. And uh, I did start out that way, kind of with some rabbinic internship, assistant rabbi type positions, and kind of doing that, that type of work uh, for a variety of reasons that I won't go into right now uh, that took different turns and, and didn't end up uh, working out for me uh, at that time. Uh, and so I was pivoting to try and figure out what I wanted to do. And um, after speaking with uh, some of my rabbeim and, and different people, um, I ended up applying for a PhD program uh, in Jewish philosophy uh, to study Hasidus more in depth. And uh, I, I was under the impression that I had an in um, from uh, certain connections and and uh, meetings with a particular professor, the impression that I was given was that I was good to go. Uh, and then I got a letter of rejection. Uh, and so at that point, I really had no idea what I was doing. Uh, both, uh, it kept being kind of like what direction I would go in and then uh, a roadblock would come up. And so I got on another path and then another roadblock came up. 
and I was trying to figure out what to do. I can remember a few different uh, nights um, with uh, a lot of Dairy Star in, in my apartment and feeling very uh, existentially uh, uh, lost. And then I got a call about a position that was opening at Ida Crown uh, for a Rebbe, a Rebbe position. And I was kind of trying to figure out what to do. I was still learning full time at that point, uh, but I was trying to figure out what to do next. And so I took that position and knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do fully long term, but it was a good opportunity and something I did love. I ended up doing for four years. Uh, but, but then in trying to figure out what to do, I decided that I was interested in becoming a therapist, a, a, psych, a psychotherapist, I guess to call it, and uh, decided to pursue uh, a master's in social work, which is what I did. And I'm really, really happy that all those roads got blocked for me because it, it forced me to find the road that I now look back and clearly see is where I should have been almost wondering how I ever thought to do anything else because I feel so incredibly fortunate and blessed to be doing this work. Wow. So it was, it was, not, it was totally not planned or anywhere I, I expected myself to be. You know, if you would ask me even five years ago, four years ago, this wasn't what I was, well, I guess four years ago, I was already started school, but five, six years ago is not, not my intention. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, I can vouch for that because I remember that uh, one night in YU, I have this specific memory of coming over. We were in the same philosophy class for one class and coming over to your house and studying. And you were certainly oh, yeah. very well versed in that. And so I uh, not sure who could who could have turned that down, but it was certainly meant to be and uh, amazing and amazing how we are. And we end up where where God wants us to be. So yes. Uh, I totally feel that in my in my experience. The field of mental health is very fortunate to have had all those roads blacked as well. Um, so I want to maybe jump into a little bit more, you know, what you do in as a therapist. Um, I know you deal with addiction on different levels. So what can you tell us about the dangers of addiction? how to prevent it, how to be there for others who are struggling and anything else you want to tell us, you know, about what you do right now? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be transparent in, in talking about this. Um, one of my, uh, primary areas of specialization is treating, uh, sex addiction, uh, which is obviously uh, a sensitive topic. And, you know, when you're speaking on a, a broad platform like this, where I don't know who exactly the listeners are or will be, you know, I'd be kind of careful and intentional about how we talk about it. So I'm not, I'm not going to really go too deeply into, uh, in, into the, the specifics of that. But what I will say is in terms of thinking about addiction in general, and when we think about addiction, we, we often think of certain caricature profiles of an addict, but really addiction is a human condition. And addiction is, is, is part of our tendency as humans to make compulsive decisions that have negative consequences on our lives, on ourselves that don't align with our values. And yet we continue to choose to make those decisions over and over again, despite their negative consequences and despite possibly not wanting to do that. So if you think about it as simply as how many times do you go to the fridge at night in your kitchen after 10 o'clock at night when you really don't need to be eating anything else and you swore to yourself that you weren't gonna do that again, and you do that. Uh, whether or not you meet the threshold for a clinical diagnostic level of addiction, I can't say offhand, but we all have addictive struggles in different ways. And one of the first things that I always say to a client when they're coming in for, for an, a struggle with addiction is 
your addiction is actually not your problem. And that's, that's a really important point. And it really kind of takes people aback a little bit for a second. Well, what do you mean? My addiction is destroying my life. The reason I'm in here is because uh, my, my wife found out about these things that I've been doing and, you know, this, my job is in jeopardy, you know, well, your addiction is not your problem. It's actually your attempted solution to a problem. Now it became its own problem because it's a flawed solution, but it was actually, it's actually rooted in being an attempted solution to your problem. People have underlying issues, whether that's anxiety or depression or a lack of a, of a core sense of self, uh, whether it's uh, trauma that they've experienced, whether it was emotional neglect, developmental neglect, whatever it may have been. And those are obviously big topics to, to unpack, not for now, but whatever it may have been and for the, whatever reasons, the way that they learned to take care of themselves while living in that void or that chaos or that pain they learned to take care of themselves in the best way that their system could figure out when it didn't have any other resources. And very often the ways that we learn to take care of ourselves are ways that are numbing, escaping, avoiding, overstimulating, self-pleasuring in ways that are not necessarily healthy, but actually do the job to avoid the other pain. And so they work for a certain amount of time, but then they become their own sort of problem. And that's really the, the, the model or the, the paradigm of, I think, how we need to approach addiction, uh, looking at it through a much more humanistic lens. Uh, this is not a moral failing. This is not a bad person. This is a person with pain. This is a person who is simply a human and humans struggle. And in that struggle, we all reach out for different resources. And some of us are more fortunate. Some of us are less fortunate to have healthy resources available to us that help us adapt. And some of us find self-medication in maladaptive ways. And that's, that's really where, where addiction comes from. That's in terms of speaking about the individual. If it's okay, I would share another piece about addiction that I think is really helpful to know because you know that way of thinking about it is when we think about an individual person and when, they when they're presenting with an addictive tendency uh, or, or a full-fledged addiction. But I think it's also really important to think about addiction on a more systems level. So what I mean by that is thinking about it in the sense of where does it come from that an, that an individual develops an addiction? What's the system? What's the family environment, the home environment that most often facilitates or creates or allows for the creation of addictive tendencies and ultimately severe addictions? And there's actually really important research and data on this. Uh, my knowledge of the research, I wanna be clear, is, is specific with, specifically with regards to sex addiction, not other forms of addiction like alcohol, drugs, gaming, eating, spending, et cetera. But I think that uh, if we looked into it, I would imagine the research would probably be very, very similar. And regardless, it's, it's relevant in some way. So there is a, a model uh, known as the as Olson's circumplex model of family systems. Now that's a that's a fancy name, uh, but uh, there's a guy I forgot his first name. Last name is Olson, and it's really worth looking this up. It's really powerful and, and important. And what he talks about is that there are two different scales that we can think about in terms of family environments or the ways that that a home functions. So one scale has to do with how connected are the individuals in the home? Let's talk about the parents and the children. 
how connected are the parents and the children? So there's a sliding scale, there's a spectrum. What's the cohesion of the family unit is the way he puts it. On one side of the spectrum, the co there's very low cohesion. So it's what he calls disengaged. If you take a step over towards more cohesion, the family is separated, but engaged. If you take a step over towards more cohesion, the family is connected. And then if you take a step even further into cohesion, now we enter another unhealthy form of cohesion, which is enmeshed. So we have a spectrum from disengaged to enmeshed with a middle of separated and connected. Now, hold on to that for a second. So there's this spectrum of how cohesive is the family unit? How engaged is the family unit? Second scale of looking at a family system is the flexibility or the way that the family has rules and standards and expectation and the way that they communicate and hold and operate within those rules and expectations and standards. And so here again, we have a sliding scale and we move from the most intense, which is what Olson calls rigid. So we are ironclad. This is the way things need to be. This is how our family does things. Other people do that, but this is how we do it in a very rigid way. We don't send different kids to different schools. We don't think about you know, treating individual kids differently. This is the way that it's supposed to be and that's it. Then we become a little bit less rigid and we talk about structure, boundaries, structure within a family, expectations, rules. We move a little bit further away and we become flexible. And then we move to the other side of the spectrum and we become chaotic. And there's no rules, there's no standards, it's just chaos. So again, we have this spectrum from rigid to chaotic with in-between flexible and structured. Now what Olson found and what Patrick Carnes found using Olson's model is that I forgot exactly the numbers. It's either in the high 80s or high 90s percentage, which is astoundingly high, that 80 something or 90 something percent, let's say just to play it safe, 80 something percent, which is still astoundingly high, 80 something percent of people who later in life Show, present with a sex addiction are people who came from families that in those two scales, the family system was one of rigidity and disengagement. The combination of being rigid in the rules and the, and the standards and being disengaged in terms of relationships is the most, is, put, is possibly the most damaging family environment. And that has a very high propensity for the possibility of addicts growing up in that household. And I think that that's so important for the from community to think about because we have a lot of rules. As from Jews, we live with our baseline is so much rules and that's good. Boundaries are a good thing, right? Boundaries, are, we need boundaries, we need standards. But what kind of flexibility do we have within that? And what kind of rigidity do we have within that? And the other reason it's so important is because as from Jews, and I think Corona and quarantine has kind of, you know, shifted this a little bit, but pre, you know, Corona, we're so over-programmed. Dinner is all the time, you know, you're pushed to, we should learn night Seder and we should go to Minyanim and we should go to shul events and we should go to women's events. And there's so many different things we're being programmed all the time. And how does that impact our level of engagement or disengagement with our children? You know, and, and thinking about those two different scales of, there's no, no one's gonna hit it perfectly on the head anywhere in the range of structured 
to engage is healthy. It doesn't have to be exact. There's, there's a range of healthy cohesion, not only one thing that it could be. And then within rules also, there's some families can be tighter and some families can be a little bit more loose. We don't want to be rigid and we don't want to be chaotic. So anywhere in that spectrum is, is really healthy. And, you know, thinking about addiction, that's really the environment that leads to addiction more than even the individual qualities. Wow. So many great points. So many great points. And to me, I mean, just the, the focus on relationships and how our home and our relationships within our family and within our community can really just make such an impact in and of themselves. And also how uh, I love how you phrase that towards the beginning about the attempted solution, right? Because uh, that the addiction is not the issue, but the attempted solution really is it, it seems to give a lot of hope of like, this isn't something which is impossible to overcome. You know, there's, there's really something within my control that we can do. And uh, yeah, tremendous yeah, for me, you know, you asked how kind of how I got into this field and I explained how it was mostly by accident uh, or, you know, not what I planned, but specifically getting into the field of addiction, that part was really actually an accident. Um, when I was looking for an, for an internship, it was, I, I didn't even realize that the place I had gotten my internship was, was really a specialized practice in sex addiction. And I just kind of ended up in that. But the piece that got me in that, that, that just grabbed me and, and made me want to want to then pursue that specialization was this point when I first encountered this about seeing addiction um, as, as, as being the person's attempted solution uh, to, a, to a deeper problem. That was to me just really grabbing. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you did mention a lot about relationships. So if I could jump for a second, you know, I know that you also do some work with couples, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so I would imagine that's also, you know, very related. And can you speak to that a little bit in terms of creating tighter bonds and, you know, what, what can maybe the general public, even someone who's not in your office, uh, but some the general public do to improve on these relationships? Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to know where to begin with that one because there are so many different things we could talk about. Um, but I guess, you know, uh, w- one thing I would, I would say is when I'm working with a couple, a lot of the couples that I work with uh, because of my area of focus, uh, the couples I work with are couples that are trying to heal from uh, the way that an addiction has ruptured their relationship. And in that context, we need to really start from the ground up. Um, and the way that we do that is by working through working in steps. And steps is a cute little term for functioning as an acronym uh, for safety, trust, emotional intimacy, and physical intimacy. And we have to work in that order. That is, those are, we have to take steps. We have to work, you know, one step at a time. And that's the order that relationships need to develop for them to be healthy. Uh, We need to have safety in the relationship, trust in the relationship, emotional intimacy, and then physical intimacy. And when it goes backwards, you know, it it spells pets, right? Which is not great. (laughs) Great point. Um, Not exactly what we want to be in the relationship. (laughs) Right. And if it's out of order, then it doesn't spell anything. It's just gibberish, right? Right. And uh, so, you know, I think that sometimes the work that we need to do in the therapeutic context is something that for a lot of people, um, when they are not struggling to the same degree 
there, there, there are things that might come a bit more naturally. And so we almost have to do them in a, in the therapeutic context in a way that is so intentional that there's almost an awkwardness around it. Um, so it's almost like if you take like a sports player trying to learn to dribble with their left hand, there's like an awkwardness to it. A lefty. So you're right. assuming this player is a lefty. <laughs> yes, I have all my, uh, my preconceived, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, so, so, right, there's an awkwardness to that. And so I don't know that every couple uh, needs the type of intentionality in building that safety that I'm working on with some couples who are really rebuilding from the ground up. But I think the, the, the piece of that work, of the safety and trust stages that I'm working with people on, that I think are relevant even to, um, to more, uh, let's say, regular situations, not as ruptured situations, is that it's so counter to our sensibilities and intuition about what a relationship and love and romance should look like, but we need to state our needs. So many people think and feel, and I know this is a cliche, I think we've probably all heard this, but it's just so true. So many people think and feel that if I say what I need, if I say how this makes me feel or what I would like someone to do for me or what would be enjoyable for me or what it is that uh, you know, that, that I'm upset about. And, and, and it's not that you figure it out or you intuit it. Well, then that cheapens it. And then that, you know, if I had to say it, then it doesn't mean anything anymore. And, you know, there's a, there's a really, uh, that's a really important piece to, to get over in a sense. Um, and for some people getting over that, you can't just get over that. For some people, there needs to be some more probing around what is it like for you to state a need? Because for some people, there's trauma around that, or there's underlying insecurities, and there's some real issues that need to be addressed for them to be able to state a need. But for other people, and then, and then I would recommend, you know, some, some therapeutic um, support. But, but for some other people, it really is just a cultural thing. Like, we need to just get over that cultural hump, that cultural obstacle of feeling um, that being dependent makes me childish or immature. You know, Sue Johnson, uh, author and, and researcher, renowned marriage therapist, she writes in her book, Love Sense, that Western culture thinks dependence is a dirty word, wow. right? It's something that means that you're childish, you're weak. And the reality, and, and that's just not a true reality, right? We, we do want to have some dependency. It's what, the, what makes the world function. I mean, we have dependency everywhere, right? I mean, I'm depending on you. You're depending on me. We're depending on, right now in this conversation, we're depending on the fact that there's listeners, on the fact that there's the people who program the podcasts, on the people who run Zoom, on the Wi-Fi in my house, and the Wi-Fi in, in, your, in your house. And there's, there's dependency all around us. It's unavoidable. And our relationships are only as strong as we allow for that dependency. Uh, or, or what I like to think about is interdependency. Such a, such a fantastic point. And absolutely. I mean, I think that's certainly a takeaway that anyone can relate to anyone in a relationship, you know, for sure, in terms of being able to get over that hump of just, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not, not a weakness. It's nothing about me. It's okay to say I need something and how bonding and how great is that when our spouse, right, is able to fulfill that need, what, what bonds us greater than that? So I totally, I totally hear that point. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. So 
You know, I want to want to shift gears for a moment, if it's okay with you. And I know that one thing um, that you've also gotten, an, you know, an increased interest in is the idea of mindfulness and meditation, which is uh, certainly in the world of mental health a very big push towards as a whole. And so, if you could tell us a little bit, how did you get into that? Can you what can you tell us about that? If you're willing, even maybe if there's a quick exercise to run us through. You know, uh, I'd love to hear about that. Sure. So, you know, I guess it's it's uh, it's interesting. The terms get thrown around a lot, and they mean different things, right? right. So, um, I think that mindfulness really, very simply, means self awareness or awareness of self. And what that means is being aware of what am I thinking right now? What am I feeling right now? And what am I noticing in my body right now? What's going on in my body right now? And so really at the core of any therapeutic process, uh, there's going to be uh, mindfulness in there, or actually not just in there, but as a baseline. Because if therapy has to do with interchange to facilitate experiencing uh, a different world around us, well, we can't have interchange if we don't know what our inside is. And so before we can really use any interventions in, in, in a sense, we need to have just knowledge and awareness. Uh, so mindfulness really is kind of just this, this basic awareness of self. And the practice of mindfulness means living more and more with an awareness of that. And you know, the truth is, I, I actually, I think there might be different opinions on this, but I actually don't think that we want to be in a mindful state 24-7. Because the mindful state is the self-reflective state. So it's the state of being of, of what am I thinking? You know, and, and so, you know, the, 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 the ancient Greek philosophical statement of the unexamined life is, is, is not worth living, right? Uh, but Dave, professor or philosopher David Schatz, also likes to say, uh, the over-examined life is also not worth living. It's a fantastic one. <laughs> because if we're always in that, that mindful state, we're so self-reflective that it's very hard to actually find meaning because our minds are so, uh, can be so overly analytical and skeptical and questioning and so we, we, we need to allow ourselves to sometimes simply experience things, right? You're at a, you're, you know, in Yom Kippur davening and, you know, and, and we're singing a, a, a niggin or it's, you know, you're at a, at a, at a, at a, at a, at a shear or something and the speaker is speaking and in a really inspiring way. That's actually a great time not to be in a mindful state. That's a great time to be swept up. But then we also need mindfulness because we need to be self-reflective. And so I think there's a really important balance around that. Uh, but, but then veering off kind of into meditation, uh, meditation I think is more when we, uh, mindfulness can be a form of meditation, uh, but meditation can refer to, to lots, lots and lots of different things, I guess. But what I guess I'll say for me that I think is so important about mindfulness and meditation is, is, is really developing an awareness of not just the thoughts and not just the emotions, but the body. Um, thankfully, I think the therapeutic world is, is shifting more and more away from the cognitive 
uh, overemphasis in therapy, uh, the thought realm of therapy, and into uh, the somatic focus on therapy, which is the body focus, because the body really holds so much more wisdom than our than our the 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 part of our brain that is the rational part of the brain, the part of the brain that we think of when we say our brain, that rational logical brain, because so much more of our deepest sense of self and our deepest emotions and deepest realities of how we understand ourselves and how we relate to ourselves and how we're feeling about it, somebody else and something else is really going on in our body. But most of us, self-included until a couple of years ago where I encountered this and then began really personally working on this, uh, so many of us are really cut off at the neck. Um, we just have an awareness of intellectual intellectualization. Uh, and there's so much more wisdom stored in our body. Uh, even just to give a simple example, you know, you're driving on the, um, you know, you're driving on the highway and a car cuts into your lane. So you, you jump up, you slam on the brakes, you honk you, your, your, the horn and you, you get, you know, potentially probably angry, right? And you avoid the, the disaster. And then after you've averted the threat, you calm down. And at that moment, you, you, you then reflect and are like, wow, that was really close. That guy is such a bad driver, right? That's a nice way of saying what you're probably gonna say in that moment, right? <laughs> I don't know who's listening to the podcast. <laughs> um, so, right? But notice the order there. The body picked up on everything going around so much more quickly than your rational mind and your conscious rational mind. And thank God for that. Because if you would, if you would be processing that first through your rational mind, you would be in an accident before you could ever have a chance of even deliberating the two options that you have. Right. So our body has so much more wisdom uh, about the world around us than our mind. And to me, the, the, the really powerful shift that I've taken in my mindfulness practice is placing my mindful awareness on my body and really the gut feeling and knowing where do I store my feelings and energies and how is my body communicating to me? So for myself, like I, I have certain signs now, like I know that if my jaw is really tense, that means I'm stressed. So when I feel tension in my jaw, that's just for me where I hold it. My, my jaw gets tight and you know, you'll see right now, I think this is only an audio podcast, but you know, I'll be going like this, you know, kind of opening and closing my jaw a lot, which I guess the listeners can't see, but you know, and then now I'll be like, oh, okay, must be there's some stress going on that my body picked up on much quicker than my mind did. Right. Or if I know that my heart is beating very fast and I'm, and my shoulders are getting very, you know, activated, um, I'm getting angry. And I want to know that before I, I, I lose my temper and make a bad decision. Right. So there's just so much So the mindfulness for me has really shifted into more of an awareness of the body uh, more than the mind itself. Fascinating, really fascinating. I mean, we, you know, we think about that in terms of anxiety and stress sometimes, or certainly, you know, clinically we do apply that and where we're feeling it and how to release that tension go. But, uh, but to be able to be so in line with what our body is telling us, there's so many messages that are held within our body. So it's a great, great point. Yeah. I want to talk because, you know, as we mentioned in the intro, not only are you a therapist or psychotherapist, but you also have smicha. 
and uh, you have a tremendous wealth of Torah knowledge. And you also, I guess at this point as a side gig, like to give shiurim, um, you know, and, and they are very fantastic shiurim. I've certainly enjoyed and uh, you have tremendous Torah to give as well. So I want to, you know, question, I guess, and, and hear how do you find that your accomplishments in learning, the teaching Torah, the learning Torah, how does that, you know, does that, and if so, how come into your clinical work? Yeah, uh, question that has so many places we could go with it. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll start and see where it goes, and then you'll tell me if you know I'm running out of time or you need me to, to wrap up in any way. So one thing uh, is that I would say a lot of the time spent learning, um, I think about that not only the, of course, the content that we learn and the actual knowledge of Torah that we carry with us uh, in our minds uh, and in our hearts is, and in our bodies, right, <laughs> uh, is something that is, that is invaluable. But I think that a lot of what Talmud Torah is about is also beyond the content. It's about shaping a type of personality, uh, shaping a way of thinking. Uh, and I shared, I shared this recently uh, in, a, in a share that I gave uh, but, uh, but I'm you know, happy to repeat it here, uh, that you know, we, we talk about in, in learning Torah, there's a concept of pardes, uh, that everything we learn has these four layers to it, shot, remez, drash, and so, which stands, which the acronym of pardes, and pardes means kind of a, an orchard or a, or a garden uh, of sorts, and it's the, 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 the garden of Torah, and there's these four different layers. And those different layers are different ways of interpreting a text. So you could look at a text, you could look at a story of, of Avraham and Sarah, and you could learn it on the shot level. Here's what happened. This is the story, right? This is, this is the story. There's the, the plain meaning of the text, not necessarily the literal, but the plain meaning of the text. That's the shot. And then you have the drash, which is to kind of pull out, to, ex, to, to extrapolate ideas, messages, themes from this. And so you can look at the text, not just in the plain meaning of it, but what's the, what's the, the message that emerges from this text? And then you could look at the text and you can, you can think about it on a remez level, which means the hints of it. What are the, what are the things that are even more hidden within the text? Uh, they're almost, they're, there are allusions to them, um, but, but they're not, they're revealed, meaning they're kind of hidden within the text. And then you have the sowed level, which is even deeper, almost as if you will, the subconscious of the text, right? And, and in developing, in, in spending time learning Torah, what we're developing is a mind that is able, or a personality really, that's able to look at a text and see all these different dimensions in it. And that is powerful because our whole life is about interpreting not texts, but interpreting the texts around us, the people, the events, the experiences that we encounter are the texts in living life that we are interpreting constantly. And a lot of people, you know, you look around in the world and there's so much oversimplification of issues because so many people only interpret things on one level. And what it means to be somebody who has, who studies Torah is to be somebody who can, who can engage with multiple interpretations, multiple layers of the very same text, the very same experience. And when it comes to the human personality, the human being, the human soul, there's shot. Drash, Remez, and Sod also. There's the plain meaning of this person's action. 
and there's a deeper meaning of this person's action. And there's a cognitive interpretation and a, and a, and a somatic interpretation and a subconscious interpretation and a Freudian interpretation. And, uh, you know, there's, there are so many, so many interpretations for us. And so learning in that way, and similarly learning, you know, the kind of classic yeshiva lumdus, where we have chakiras, we take any given halacha, and there's two ways of looking at this. And what we're being trained to do is, is to be able to hold multiple perspectives at the same time, to see nuance, to see possibility, and not just be locked into one thing, to have that, that kind of, that, that sense of curiosity in the world that we live in. And that really is Gemara also, you know, because you think about it, a Mishnah is the pshat, right? A Mishnah is a very simple statement few lines to the point, bottom line. Okay, here is what's going on. The Mishnah, we have Mishnahs all around us in the world. Simply, this is what's happening. Something's happening. But the Gemara looks at a Mishnah and says, Mili, you know, where, where is this coming from? Let's find the source for this. And then the Mishnah pulls another, the Gemara pulls another source and puts it in contrast or comparison with this. And now the, the Gemara starts to make things messy. It starts to make things really interesting in the messiness. And the Gemara spends a lot of time exploring possibilities that it knows it's ultimately going to say are wrong. Because what the Gemara is training us to do is to be people who can live in the process of things that ultimately will end in failure, but have meaning. So the Gemara goes through the temas, and if you'll say, and it'll spend a long time telling you the if you'll say, but when it says tema, you already know it's going to reject it. So why are we spending so much time on this? Because it's cultivating the type of personality who can live in that curiosity, that, that, that exploration. And that's really what, I mean, that's really what life is about, but it's also really what therapy is about, that space of, of, of kind of exploration. So for me, um, it's almost like every person is, is another, is another, I mean, I guess you could hear this in a way that sounds minimizing, but I mean this in a way that is, that it's maximizing. I mean this in a very, a very holy way, in a very um, celebrating the depths of humanity way. Every person that walks into the office is another sugya. Right? There's, it's, it's, there's, there's layers of shot, drash, ramesh, so there's hakiras, there's, there's mishnas and gemaras, there's, there's endless exploration here. Uh, and it's not necessarily about like being able to hit the nail on the head in some amazing, brilliant theory, but it's about walking through the journey of self-exploration with that person. I absolutely love that. I really, really do. I mean, I feel like that should be, that was so eloquently said, and I feel like that should be taught before the every kid's first Gemara class, you know, just maybe they won't understand the ideas of Pshat, Ramesh, Drash, and Sod, but, you know, on some level of just understanding that Gemara, the Torah is Torah Schaim, it's a Torah of life, right? It's it's something, yeah. Yeah. The, the Torah that we are meant to adapt to. I was talking actually recently with my wife. Um, I didn't appreciate this while I was in Yeshiva, but my Rebbe, Rav Yaakov Neuberger, uh, he would always have an emphasis, you know, it's a classic question in Yeshiva, Bikis versus Ian, right? How quickly do you go through something on a surface level versus really, you know, spending the time of delving into it? And he was always yeah. very strong on, on, take, on going slow and taking the time of, of looking uh, to the depth. Because I remember him saying multiple times that it trains the way you learn and it trains the way you think. And when I was in Yeshiva, I was like, come on, I just want to get moved, you know, move through things a little bit. But as I've moved past Yeshiva and into, you know, the quote unquote real world, you know, the outside of yeshiva world, um, it's, it's, it really is so true how you just have to look at everything in life with, with depth and it creates such a richer and deeper understanding. So I really, that, that speaks to me a lot. I appreciate it. So yeah, we'll, we'll end off with just one, uh, one question. I guess it'll be one, 
a two-part question. First part is, I don't know if you have, but if you do, if you have a particular story that either surprised or stood out to you during your work in, in any of these fields, really, but in the therapeutic world, and if not, just uh, if you could leave us at least with one message that you would want the listeners, particularly in, the, in our the Orthodox community, to walk away with, uh, that we would be so grateful for that. Huh, yeah, a story. So um, it's tricky because, um, you know, I haven't uh, been doing this for long enough that I have old stories. Right to be comfortable sharing in a, uh, in a recorded kind of a way sure. um, because of clients confidentiality and not that I would be revealing any personal information, but even if someone were to hear it and then feel uncomfortable that I was shared. Um, I think, you know, oftentimes we hear therapists telling stories, you know, they might've been in the field for 15, 20 years and they have a story from, you know, or 30 years, they have a story from ages ago and they feel comfortable sharing it. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to actually, uh, it's a great question, I, I, and I'd love to answer, but I'm going to respectfully refrain from answering. And I, I, uh, I think that I hope your clients do hear this because uh, <laughs> hopefully that will only increase the trust they have in you. Speaking of trust, we already spoke about that before. Yeah, I very much yeah. definitely appreciate that. So then if you could leave us, if you have kind of one sure. message that, you know, that we should walk away with. I know there's so many, but the, there's one that can... Yeah, yeah sure. So I, I guess the, the message that I'll leave, uh, you know, leave with... Uh, relates to the previous question you asked about, you know, what's it like, the other part of the question that you asked me about, you know, my, my, you know, having, let's say, gone for smicha and spent, you know, time learning uh, before becoming a therapist, how that impacted me. So I kind of answered on the Talmud Torah level, uh, but I also um, will answer more in terms of like how that shows up in the therapy work. And I guess maybe that'll, that'll segue into a message, uh, which is, You know, when I first started, which is not so long ago, like I just said, but when I first started, I was very reticent to use or to bring in ruchnius, spirituality, to the clinical context. I think I was too kind of unsure of myself in, in, in a healthy way. I think it was actually the right thing in, in those early stages, earlier stages, um, to, to kind of have a divide between, you know, personal belief, my own personal beliefs and a client's you know, beliefs. Um, and I still, of course, hold that, you know, I can't project any of my own personal beliefs or religion or spirituality onto any clients, whether Jewish or not Jewish, you know, observant or not observant. Uh, so I'm still very careful with that in, in that kind of, you know, ethical way. Uh, but I've become more confident and comfortable when it aligns with the client's sense of spirituality and faith. I've become more comfortable in utilizing faith and God and ruchnius or spirituality, whether with a Jew or not, or, or non-Jew, um, whether it's someone who is a spiritual person of faith, um, not within a Torah observant lifestyle, but again, you know, I work mostly or a lot with, with, from, with from Jews. And so in that context, uh, I've become more and more interested in utilizing that in the clinical context. And what I've found is that people who have a, a, a strong spirituality, not necessarily religion, because a lot of people can live religion without spirituality, but people who live spiritual religion, uh, it's incredibly powerful. 
And some of my most meaningful experiences are experiences with clients who, who bring spirituality into the process and relate to God in a personal way, not just as kind of the, the giver of commandments and laws and the creator of the world, but a living God that lives with them, that is in the journey with them, that's going to rehab with them, that is in the room with us in the therapeutic trenches. Um, and those moments and that experience of connection to Hashem uh, has been so powerful. And for me personally, has been so powerful. For, on a personal level, my two of my biggest influences in my own Ruchnius have been therapists of mine. Um, my current therapist and a former therapist. Um, my former therapist, I'll name by, I'll, I'll mention her name. Her name is Dr. Sarah Barris and my current, I won't mention by name, but, but they've actually been as influential on my own development of connection and relationship with Hashem as any, any Rav or a piece of Torah has been in my life. Um, and so, uh, you know, I guess my message in that is really thinking about our relationship with God and what that means in a very personal way, not just uh, kind of in the, the do's and don'ts, but what does it really mean uh, when I'm distressed about something, when I'm having a challenge, what does it mean to actually talk to God about that? For God to be your therapist, much better therapist than I am. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And it's, it's so true. It's so true. The, uh, and I know there's so many that follow and uh, share that feeling and that belief in terms of the you know, focus on spirituality, especially today, that it's so important to have in, in our world. And uh, God, like you said, is certainly the best therapist. So the koachat filo as well. Yaakov, last thing is, I understand you started a YouTube channel sharing thoughts of Torah and psychology. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that for their own benefit? If you enjoyed any of the thoughts that I shared during this conversation, I'd love if you would check out my YouTube channel called Life Torah, one word, Life Torah. And in there, we share very short clips, three to five minute videos on different Torah thoughts that have psychological relevance in three different categories, parenting Torah, recovery Torah, and marriage Torah. So if, uh, if you liked and enjoyed any of this, please check it out and maybe even subscribe. Thanks. So exciting. Such a benefit for all of us to be able to have the Torah and thoughts of Rabbi Yaakov readily available for us in such small clips. So I look forward to benefiting from that as I hope many of our listeners do. Thank you so much, Yaakov, for your time and everything you do for our community locally and globally through your talents in the world of therapy and your insight in the world of Torah. And thank you. Thank you for joining us and for your time here. Thank you. You're very welcome. And uh, I really appreciate, thank you for, for uh, inviting me and uh, just a huge supporter of Madregos and, and you personally. Uh, so yeah, I think this is a great, a great uh, endeavor that you guys are doing. Thank Can't you wait to, to hear the other podcasts. Thank you. And thank you to all those listeners of our uh podcast mental health matters we uh, look forward to many more episodes together we have a wonderful day everyone
Thank you for listening to this episode of Mental Health Matters. To learn more about Madragos Midwest, visit us at madragosmidwest.org. Please join us next time as we discuss another mental health matter.